The Pinball Network is online. Launching The Pinball Show. Pinball is a game of skill. For some, it's a passion and a lifestyle. It's time for The Pinball Show. It's pinball with personality. Welcome to episode three of the Pinball Show's interview series. I'm your host, Matt Morrison, and this month we have John Rothermel, head of mechanical engineering at Stern Pinball. We talk past, present, future mechs at Stern, and a little rock and roll. So buckle up, strap in, and let's go. Well, it's great to have you on here, John. I'm super excited because there's a lot of engineers and guys in the background that we just don't get to talk to or hear about. And it's funny because I saw an an article from uh, Pinball Expo, I think it was 2015, and David Thiel was inducted in the Hall of Fame and Lyman Cheats. And and you're right there, John. And and I was like, we got to know more about this guy. I mean, he's touched so many Stern games and, you know, I'm just thrilled to talk with you. You know, starting out, Tell us your position at Stern and, and kind of what you were doing before you got to Stern. Okay. Well, I'm the manager of mechanical engineering. Uh, I have uh, three guys uh, working for me, and I, I also work with them. Um, prior to Stern, I've been with Stern, uh, what, going on 20 years now. Uh, prior to that, I uh, worked for various uh, companies. I designed nail guns for pass load. I designed garage door openers for Chamberlain. Designed uh, suspension systems for Merrimont. Uh, just a, a little bit of a variety of different things. So what what brought you to Stern Pinball? How did you end up working in pinball? Well, you know, I'm... Uh, I grew up in France, um, and I was exposed to pinball at a very young age, about six years old. My grandfather was a truck driver, and he used to take me everywhere, and we'd stop in restaurants and bars, and, you know, he would speak with his friends and give me a a few French francs and go play pinball. And um, so anyway, all these years, you know, went by. I came to the United States in 1978 you know, did all this work I was telling you. And then finally came across uh, this opportunity at Stern back in 2002. And I thought, you know, that would be definitely something I I need to check out. And I went in and they hired me at the time for just uh, as a uh, a design engineer. And uh, I guess I did well enough that they put me in charge of mechanical a few years later. 
Oh, that's awesome. So I tried to piece together your timeline a little bit at Stern with what I can find on the internet, but it sounds like with your manager role, you, you're kind of touching every game, really. Is that is that right? Yes, uh, to some extent. Okay. Um, I You know, there are games where I have... Uh, no, none of my designs going in, but certainly the the back and forth and you know the the discussions, the reviews of mechanisms or whatever is done on a game. Yes, that is uh, that goes on on a continual basis. Right, and go, and going back, uh, kind of the first game I found in your IPDB history would be like Terminator Three in like yes. two thousand three. Well, I was going to say that was my. Uh, my baptism by fire, if you will. <laughs> Are you, do you know Steve Ritchie? You know oh, him? of course, yeah. Okay. Well, you know, here I come, Stern Pinball, uh, you know, don't know anything about designing a pinball machine. Certainly, I know how they work. And, but they put me in with Steve as my first game. Uh, you know, I didn't know Steve. I met him, and we started working together. Um, and uh, like I said, it was a baptism by fire because working with Steve can be uh, challenging sometimes, but, you know, we ended up becoming good friends. And uh, after all these years, we've made uh, together, I, you know, I, I can't count the games. I, I, oh, I, know. I would have to really think about it. Yeah, and that, not to foreshadow too far in the future for the viewers, but I was that was a, a main theme we're going to see as we go down the list is, you know, Steve Ritchie so yeah. many times popping up. But with Terminator 3, um, you know, that's one of the last games I can remember having something in the back box um, with that RPG cannon. Yes. Um, that game has a lot of steel ramps and wire forms. Yeah. Uh, I was told by a collector at one point, I, pl I played this game oh. several times, that it would be very expensive to make this game today. Probably, yes, yes, you're you're probably right. You know, we do much more plastic ramps now in games. Um, the thing is, you know, funnily enough, for me, I'd rather do uh, plastic ramps because we have a lot more freedom on, as to what we can do with the trajectories and things like that. The steel ramps, you're you're limited uh, because you know it's a it's a flat piece of steel. You can bend it, but you can't really make helixes or you know twist them too hard. Right. So yeah. did you did you get mad at Keith Elwin on Avengers for that Captain Marvel ramp? Were you <laughs> like Keith, get out of here with that? <laughs> no, not at all. I I really admire what other people do, and yeah, uh, it's it's a cool shot. Know, yeah, there's no question. I mean, you have to understand. I'm, I'm I mean, I'm older. Okay, uh, not far from retirement, and the the younger guys have new ideas that I think are are fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, we can't lose you now. I mean, the pinball <laughs> is heating up. I mean, we we got to keep you in the game as long as we can. I'll be around for a few more years. You know. Awesome. Hopefully. So, uh, coming off Terminator 3, do we go right into Lord of the Rings? Is that kind yes. of the next? Yes, wow. I, I believe that was my the following game that I worked uh, with George. Did a lot of stuff on that game. I didn't do everything, but most of it, yeah. Wow, that's awesome. I mean, the, it's 
you know, you know, working there, it's the game's beloved. People want you guys to vault it really bad. Oh yeah, I, uh, that's a fun game to play, and the Balrog is, you know, I was very proud of my little Balrog. <laughs> uh, and then uh, the uh, the thing going through the back panel that was very cool too. So yeah, yeah. Some, some cool stuff. Yeah, definitely. And that that was one of my questions was the ring itself, the magnet it's able to grab the ball and sometimes it will, it'll drop it. And then it also does a thing where the, the magnet kind of flicks it into that wire form behind the back panel. Yep. How did, how does that work? How did you guys, you and Keith Johnson kind of come together? Um, well, it's done by pulsing the magnet. Really. Okay. Uh, that's what they do. They, they pulse it and, you know, I mean, I'm sure they observed what the ball was doing, depending on how they were pulsing it. And then once they understood how the ball was responding to the uh, the magnet, then they put that in the game, if you will, so so that the ball would either be rejected or, you know, sucked in through the back panel. It's such a cool effect, and that's what's something that's really special about Lord of the Rings is is the the ball's able to divert so many ways. You can open yeah. up, you know, to go to the upper play field, and and Balrog moves in and out of the way. The thing with the the ring magnet and and that what surprised me about it is that the magnet's vertical on Lord of the Rings, where on a game like Black Knight Sword of Rage, where you have a magna save or something like that, or a magnet that's flat, right. yeah. it just seemed like it almost defies gravity. I mean, it does in a way, you know, so it, it always surprised me that it was able to hold it, then fling it back by pulsing it. So that that's yeah. really interesting. Well, you see, it has to do also with the angle of the play field. The play field is at six and a half degrees. So the ball has a natural tendency to come back at the player. If you leave it alone, that's what it's going to do. It's not going to go by itself into the, the back panel. Of course. So with that six and a half degrees now, they can hold it in place, pulse it, make it go back and forth, and then they decide, okay, we let it go so it falls back onto the play field, or we suck it in and it goes through and comes out the uh, waveform right that's so amazing so in talking about vaulting this game george just spoke about you know some of the parts that went into this game are end of life you can't you know you might can find a couple of them you can't you can't find many of them to do a, lo- a large run of the game mm-hmm. um and obviously the board set the, the code would have to be converted to like spike two oh yeah, uh, yeah. um which would be an undertaking in itself but one thing I noticed on, because I, I had a Lord of the Rings for a while, and the the rollover switches you guys were using at the time, one's inside Balrog, as a matter of fact, and then on the upper play field. Does Stern still use that type of rollover? Not much. No. Yeah. We, yeah, I, I think um, these, these micro switches are kind of phasing out little by little. Um, the roller, uh, you know, used to be, used very widely in the ball trough you know depending on how many balls uh, the game had we had five six you know uh, roller switches Uh, we don't do that anymore if we use this roller switch it's going to be into a a dedicated mechanism that requires that small footprint right but lately i certainly i have not been using it yeah I just noticed I hadn't seen it very much on the the newer games. Yeah. Is that one, just one of the things that would be difficult to replicate in redoing Lord of the Rings, or would it be easy to put a different switch in those places? 
Um, no, I mean, we, we have new systems now, like you said, you know, with the Spike 2 system, um, we now have a different setup for the ball trough. It's all uh, opto switches. Right. Okay? So that certainly that could be installed on the game, but you would need to, like you said, reprogram it. And I mean, it's a completely different system. Yeah. I was just thinking about that upper play field and how the, the cutouts for those little rollovers are, you know, the sizing of them, what you would put in their place. And yeah, I'm trying to remember that, that play field. I think it was oscillating a little bit, right? Wasn't it? Um, that one was stationary, the path of the dead. Okay. Yeah. It, yeah, it was, forget. yeah. But uh, yeah. Okay. It had different paths. Uh, yeah. It was almost like a pachinko. It just kind of fall down. Yeah, I think if we were to do something like this today, we would mm. go with opto switches. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. LEDs, you know, receiver, transmitter. Absolutely. Kind of yeah. So what was after Lord of the Rings? I, I kind of go from 2003 to like 2006, Pirates of the Caribbean. I did work on Pirates, the, the pirate ship that everybody seemed to like a lot, <laughs> which in my opinion is a pretty simple mechanism, really. But the uh, the visual effect was pretty good. I, when I saw it the first time, it reminded me exactly of the movie when the Black Pearl comes out of the water, if you recall that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's really the motion that this ship had. And uh, I, I thought it was cool. But there was also um, uh, the idea of the game designer, um, Norman, Dennis mm -hmm. Norman. So... Yeah. Yeah, it's uh that's one of those games that's often overlooked uh in that period of Stern and uh, you know when people actually get to play it they're like, "Whoa, this game is is packed." I mean, you got the chest that yeah. opens, you got the spinning disc. It's a really good game. It was a very fun game to play as I remember it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Did you work on Simpsons at all? I did work on the couch. <laughs> that's about it because uh I think I had just started at Stern. When I started, Ray had me work on two things for two other games. So, and I remember the couch doing some work on that. And then there was this jump ramp, but I don't remember if it was for Simpsons or, yeah, it can't be for uh, Austin Powers. Oh, yeah. It, it, I think Austin did have a jump ramp through that, okay. like, spinning so loop. Then, yes, I, I did that jump ramp. Okay. Gotcha. That was the extent of my work on these two games. <laughs> Very good. So... As, as we kind of, I was always curious, you know, you coming into the company at that point was, what was your thoughts about the survival of pinball? Did I mean, were you worried at that point? You know, how's it going to, you know, is it going to make it? Um, I did worry about it in 2008. Okay. When everything hit, hit the bottom. Okay. I really thought um, I was going to lose my job, that we were going to close down and that was going to be it. Right. Um, you know, we had thin thin out the staff. Uh, we had to let a lot of people go. And to my surprise, they kept me. <laughs> they kept me and, and Ray. And uh, you know who Ray Tanzer is? I've never met Ray, but yes, the name's very Yeah, very at familiar. the time, he was my boss. And um, so there was only him and I left. And I, I, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, wow, that's, that's awesome. And then Ray left a little bit after that. So then they brought back uh, somebody else. Uh, and that's when they uh, 
put me in charge of uh, mechanical engineering. Wow. So that was like kind of transitioning out of 2008 into yeah. 910. Yeah. So around that, obviously right before that Spider-Man was, a, was a big hit for Stern. Um, you're back with Steve Ritchie again. A mm-hmm. uh, lot of, a lot of neat mechs on that kind of a homage to attack from Mars with the center mech um, with the Sandman's there, I believe. How was it getting back with Steve on that game? That was fine. I mean, I, you know, at that point, I had worked uh, with enough game designers to understand uh, the, the pinball world, if you want, because it's a little bit different, I, I have to say, <laughs> um, from what I was used to, you know, with, with very uh, highly structured companies, you know, with you know, many rules. Uh, uh, Stern was not like that at all. Stern was really made for the free flow of ideas, if you want, if I can put it that way. Okay. So people were doing their thing. Of course, there would be someone to overlook it, uh, you know, certainly Gary Stern, but it was a much more free environment from the thinking standpoint you know uh you could do things you could try different things that other companies in a more structured environment you couldn't do that so very much a creative atmosphere yes absolutely very cool so anything from that period before we kind of transition into 2011 and in those middle uh 2013-14 years you know games like 24 csi dark knight was there anything that kind of stands out with some of those games you worked on? Cause you touched so many of them, you know, something that maybe you wanted to put into a game that, that didn't make it cause it maybe just wasn't going to be reliable or. Oh, you know, that is part of our job, Matt. Um, we design many things that do not make it in games. That is part of the, that is part of the game. Okay. Uh, and that happens with everyone. You know, there are, there are some great ideas that are set forth. We work on them, we design them, then we realize it's getting too complicated, too costly, and we end up shelving it. Doesn't mean we're throwing it out. We may use it, you know, later on another game where the opportunity presents itself better, but that is part of the game. Yes, we do design uh, I don't want to say a lot, but right. many mechs that we don't use. I did have a question about Batman Dark Knight. When you guys went from Dark Knight and kind of turned it into Batman 66, uh, you know, very similar layout, what was it like taking the Joker out and putting that turntable in with the phone? Did that require a lot of engineering? and Yes. And- yeah, that, to me, looking at those two mechs, I, I really wanted to know what went into that. Yeah, the uh, yeah. Well, first of all, the you know the original reveal, I did that. Um, I did not do the second one that you're talking about. That was done by Rob Blakeman, and uh, you know I had a little bit of input in it, but uh, that was really between him and George. Uh, they they came up with that. The turntable, you know, was very difficult to to make work properly. So it was quite a challenge. Do you, do you remember maybe what he fought with, or what you kind of had to guide him along, maybe on, or? Well, the the motor was uh, the 
a big problem to find the right motor for it. We tried probably three or four different motors and we could not make them last. Gotcha. So we went heavy duty on that one. And if you look at the motor that's on that turntable, it is a heavy duty motor. Now, is it is it like an upgraded servo motor or? Uh, it's it's a gear motor. It's not okay. a servo motor. It's a it's a mechanical gear motor, but it is heavy duty. We were having a lot of problems with the gears failing. I will say now that you mention it, um, if you watch that turntable move, there's some torque on it. Oh, like yeah. it, you know what I mean? Like when it gets to its position, it's like, yep. <laughs> yeah, you can tell it's got some power. That's really cool because I, I always wonder kind of what went into to making that new turntable work. Um, so it sounds like it, it was it wasn't an easy job. No, it wasn't. It, this one was a challenge, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Well, that brings us into uh, 2011 Tron, 2013 Metallica, 2012 ACDC, even Star Trek in there as, as well. What, what was it like at the company? I mean, you guys are hit 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 i mean these are massive games for you guys um well i had a little bit to do on all of them uh star trek i did star trek uh completely that's what i recall I'm trying to remember all these games yeah no, no worries on on star trek specifically the le and having those lights in the cabinet uh-huh that was that was steve Ritchie's idea was it a pain? Did you guys have to route the cabinets a certain way? Or? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that was <laughs> the first time we were doing this. Right. So again, uh, a lot of trial and error. See if that works, and you know, until we got to something that we were comfortable with. Well, it definitely stands out in the lineup. I mean, that that's always been a special LE, you know, mm-hmm. with, with the way those cabinets. Was that a challenge for you? <laughs> like, when you come up with the idea where you're like, oh, Steve, you know, we're good. You know what well, this is going to entail. At the time, you know, I knew him well enough that nothing surprised me. <laughs> so, yeah, no, that was, we just did it and that was that, you know. And it, and when we all saw it, we, we thought, wow, this is really cool. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, you know, you're coming out of the recession, we're getting into those years. Uh, was it a feeling of optimism, you know, that you guys had so many hits on your hands with those games? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, after things got better, um, first of all, you know, there was a lot of changes happened to Stern, you know, with uh, Gary's partners. And so we we that's when we started doing uh, different models of the same game because prior to that we didn't do that then we started now with the pro the le and the premium with the different levels of mechanisms and you know the pro being the simpler games so yeah you know right away we started seeing a, a change in the way things were going and like you said it just seemed to keep going up and up and up and here we are now we're still here we're still around and we're the only big company doing this with the pro premium and le did that make your job as an engineer that much harder or was it you know really more on the art guys and the designers or no it's definitely more work it's more (laughs) work for everyone right yeah 
because you know there are there are different mechanisms, different things. We have three games now that we have to pay attention to, even though they are they are similar, they are different, and all have a, a separate bill of materials that we have to deal with. So yeah, it is definitely more work. And the same thing on the art side, you know. Uh, there used to be only one art package. Now there are three, plus the accessories. <laughs> yeah, what, what, speaking of accessories... Um, we didn't have accessories before. Yeah, what, what do you think about these toppers? Um, yeah, yeah. You know, there you go. I mean, that's a prime example. It's it's a great idea. There's no question about it. It, it uh, enhances the game. Depending on what the topper does, I mean, some are simpler than others, but yeah, it's a major addition. I knew Tom was designing a lot of the toppers up into like Munsters. Uh, do you guys have somebody in-house now that's handling that, or did they, they kind of put that on your plate as well? No, it's on our plate. <laughs> it's your yep. baby now. That's right. Yeah, yeah. with the game. I guess since we're on topper talk now, um, Zach's ears are perking up. He, uh, he's, he's the topper king in our uh, camp. The Led Zeppelin topper with those roving lights, was that fun for you guys? Or Yes. Um, so the that topper was uh, designed by Rob, Rob Blakeman. Steve wanted some, uh, some spot lamps, you know, turning around to, you know, just like you see in a concert. And that was the idea. So originally... Uh, he wanted them to do a little more than they ended up doing, but the cost started to skyrocket and we had to put a damper on it. <laughs> right. Back to Metallica. I'm not sure who actually designed Sparky, but I know you worked on the game. So I designed Sparky. <laughs> Did you? Wow. Yes. So Sparky is kind of, I think, went down in history as maybe the greatest bash toy. Ever. Really? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, a lot of people just, you know, love Sparky. So what was, was there a challenge? Because he's quite big, you know, he's, he's front and center. I always wondered that that mold is really nice too. What, was there any um, challenges with him? Well, the challenge with this one was uh, the fact that we had the, um, trying to recall now this thing is, the upper torso, I believe, is separate from the rest of the body and the chair. Um, so the challenge there was to have this moving and shaking with the little coil that's behind, but still staying on the body. You know what I'm saying? Right. So it wouldn't look like it's completely separated. We're trying to make it look like it's one body and it's just shaking at the top. So that yeah. part was a little difficult. I can see that now that I think about it. He does have like really great movement at the top portion of him, but it, it does look seamless, you know. Yes, yes, exactly. And the, that part was a little bit difficult to achieve to keep the the arms in place. And the uh, I, I believe I even had to add some screws inside to keep all this together. <laughs> right. Well, he's he's um, held up really well. I don't think I've ever played a Metallica that he didn't work. And that's, that's a testament because that game gets a lot of plays. Oh, good. In ACDC, you know, that game has a lot of smaller mechs placed throughout. A lot of times Steve kind of lets his games breathe so you can get that flow going. Yep. Anything on that game that was like, oh, man, I just really can't fit this here because he's kind of got, you know, the lightning bolts and the little guys in the back that move. You know, everything's kind of tucked away. Yeah. 
the uh, well, I did the uh, the ban on this game. Uh, that game was really uh, Rob Blakeman worked mostly on that game with Steve, but I did do the band in the corner, and uh, that by itself was quite a challenge to to make all these guys move, and especially Angus's leg, <laughs> which I absolutely wanted. That 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 was I brought that into that mechanism because right. to me. I couldn't see these guys swinging back and forth and Angus's leg not moving. It had to move and do that motion. How did you get them all, you know, tied together and uh, in the leg? I mean, where do you even start with that? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. You try different things and you see how it goes. But what it is, really, it's one single coil actuating right. all this. They uh, a link in the back. And as far as the leg, it's done with a, a small fixed fulcrum, if you want. Mm -hmm. Whereas when, when the guy swings back and forth, that leg hits a little stop and is forced to move up and come back down and move up and down. That's so cool. You know, people would look at that and just not think about, you know, what all it takes to, to get that to work but yeah. but when you really look at it and you think about like well how would i do it it's like yeah it's not that easy is it <laughs> you no, know? Yeah. Uh, originally i had a spring in there and i could not keep that spring working it kept failing so finally i said i told steve i said i think i can get the same effect without the spring and let the the leg fall back down just by itself by inertia and it did work so I know a lot of times the designers will kind of, you know, fab a ramp up or something, but when they bring it to you at that point, what, what, do you, what does it take to like make it like a production ramp? Well, okay. First of all, the plastic ramps, you know, like I was telling you, we have a lot more freedom with the path and the geometry uh, because it's a mold. So they can really do whatever, whatever they want with that. Okay. as opposed to a steel ramp, which you're limited. But uh, at the time, what we were doing, we don't do this the same way now, but at the time, we would design the ramp, they would make a, uh, the tool, the, the, the molder would make a prototype tool, like a Ren tool, if you're familiar with, uh, with Ren, like a, let's say a, a wood pattern, okay? They would make a wood pattern and start creating the vacuum form ramp from the wood pattern. Then we try it and then start modifying it. Um, now, what we do is completely different. We 3D print the ramps before ever looking at tooling. Okay. We 3D print the ramps and we try them on the games and see if uh, it's getting the effect that's desired. And only then we start looking at tooling. Yeah, that, that would save a lot of money and time, I'm yes. sure. Yes. So um, all my engineers have 3D printers at home. I have one right here. And we have some at work at Stern. And we just uh, 3D prints. <laughs> That is awesome. Okay, this this is actually something I was looking at buying like pretty soon. What uh, what 3D printer do you guys use? Uh, I I have here a Prusa. Yeah. And we have one Prusa 
uh, at Stern and another one that I'm not familiar with. I can't even tell you the name, but I think it's the same that George Gomez has at his house. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. I think that the new version is like the 2S Plus or something. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. That's, Fusa, I was looking at that the, one. The Fusa printer is a great machine, I, I got to tell you. It's, uh, it's amazing. That's what I keep hearing, yeah. Mm-hmm. How long do you think say I had a, I had a design and I'm not sure what program you guys use to like 3d model the ramp before you print it, you know, how long would it take you to, to, to print one or to design it in, in 3d CAD or whatever you're using and then print it. Okay. The design of the ramp is, uh, I don't want to say straightforward, but you know, after doing it for so long, we now have methods on how to design them. So, you know, I, I'd say, you know, in, within a day, I can have a, a fairly complex ramp designed. Wow. So then to 3D print it, depending on its size, we have to chop it in pieces and we print sections. Then we glue them together to make the final ramp. And it's good enough for us to test it. Obviously, it doesn't last as long because the materials are just not as resilient. Um, but it's good enough to test it, to test the, uh, the shots, to test the, the trajectories and, uh, it works out to print them takes a very long time. Okay. You're looking at probably a couple of days of printing. Okay. Hours, like, you know, 24 hours to print the section. Wow. So yeah, it takes a few days to print a whole ramp. The game I'm working on right now, uh, there are two plastic ramps. I can't tell you what game that is. <laughs> but um, I printed one here, and we are in the process of printing another one at Stern right now. Oh, okay. So, like, simultaneously, you guys know what you're doing. You're printing one here and one there just to kind of break it up. Yes, yes. Get more done. That's, yes, that's great. You know, the fact that we have our own printers definitely helps out. Right. And so if that's the plastic ramp, say, you know, somebody wants a metal ramp, are you like, John, go get in the shop and weld that thing together. I can't help you. Well, the the metal ramps are much simpler in terms of shape and trajectories. So in, in a way, I would say they're easier to make. Okay. Because you're taking flat steel, you're, you've got a couple bends, then a lot of welding. Right. So those I couldn't make myself. But it, to me, there are no fun to design. Again, because you, you are limited in what you can do and you have to stay with flat pieces of steel, with bends, you know, with simple bends. What about once you get to the wire form section? Um, the wire forms are, uh, to me, there's nothing really special about the wire forms. They're, they're fairly easy to design. To make is a different story. <laughs> They're quite complex to make. Right. To design them, you know, you're usually looking at a trajectory that you extrude and it follows a path. So once you have designed the, the path of the ball, then the ramp just comes pretty much in one shot. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, you, you, you just you do what we call a sweep. You sweep the wires along a trajectory. You just kind of bend them by hand as you go, or? Uh, 
Well, I'm talking about designing it. Right, right, right. On the computer. So you just you, you set up your trajectory with, with a curve and you sweep the shape of the, the wires, if you will, to follow that trajectory. Gotcha. And with one click, you get the whole ramp done. All you have to do after that is add the, the rings to hold the four wires together, which is fairly simple. Okay. So say Keith designs a wire form for his game. He's got it in the computer. How does he get the physical version of that? Um, well, we have a model maker that's actually able to, to make those. Uh, this is new. We didn't have that. Uh, he started recently, uh, let's say less than a year ago. Uh, he was hired by George. Uh, he was a former pinball person that he knew. But So now it's a little easier because within a couple of days, we can have this wire ramp. Prior to that, we had to have it made by the people who were actually going to make the production ramps. So it was a little more costly. Yeah. And wouldn't, I mean, wouldn't there be some trial and error there? Like, oh, it's not quite, you know. Would, uh, would yes. You... Yes. I mean, you know, that's up to the game designer at that point, if he likes it or not. Or he may add some wires to keep the ball in there or change the trajectory completely and go with something completely different. I assume there'd be a lot of downtime kind of in between, you know, the revisions. Yeah. But now the fact that we have this person who can do these runs fairly quickly, uh, it it helps us out, definitely. Oh, I bet. Yeah. So moving on down the timeline a little bit, uh, we're back with Steve again with Game of Thrones. And you can't Uh, look at, you know, Game of Thrones premium or LE without that upper play field. Yes. So on that game, I did most of everything except for the, um, uh, what do you call it? The dragon. Oh, okay. The dragon was designed by another engineer. But everything else you see on that game is done by me. You know, it's a pretty large upper play field. Mm-hmm. I always think about it. And was it difficult to get that much of an upper play field in the game and yes. get all the mechs under it? Well, especially that... Uh, that elevator in the back, if you recall, it has two two different paths as the ball goes in, is, is ejected from the bottom, then it can either come back on the uh, upper play field or it's diverted upward to go on the wire ramp, the helical wire ramp that goes into the throne. Right. Uh, that mechanism was a, quite a challenge to make it work properly. I did forget about that part of it. Yeah, that, I, I can imagine. Was was there anything on the lower playfield, pro or premium, that that you know maybe Steve wanted but uh, just couldn't fit it in, or maybe it wasn't going to be reliable? The battering ram. Um, originally, you wanted something much more complicated than that. The cost got out of hand, <laughs> so we ended up with this simple little thing that moves up and down. Yeah, it looks good though. Yeah, yeah it's uh, you know it's properly decorated and it it, it does the trick. I mean, it, it fits with the game. Yeah, for sure. And and you get that satisfaction that you know that kinetics. You're, you're of, hitting something. Yeah. yeah, yeah, of smashing that that thing. So um, then we go to Star Wars, and and 
one thing I always wondered on on the premium Ellie version of of this game with the Hyperloop, Steve's high speed to the getaway, the the supercharger mech on there, you know, it's similar to the Hyperloop, but it's in a much more contained area, and yeah. and and the the metal is raised up really high, so it contains the balls pretty easily. Was it hard to get the Hyperloop to con- keep the balls on that wire form? Yes. Yes, that was quite a challenge. Now, I knew it. <laughs> uh, just before uh, we continue talking about this, I had nothing to do with that game. I didn't. That's one of the games that I did not design anything uh, for it. This was done by uh, Elliot, Elliot Eisenman, uh, who's also indicted in the Pinball Hall of Fame. Yeah. Uh, very early on. See, it took me 15 years. It took him only three years. <laughs> yeah. So I was, uh, you know, I was a little bit jealous when. Of when course. But very happy because the guy is a, is a good and he's a great engineer. But yeah, that those magnets in the back, uh, keeping the ball on the wires, that was very difficult. And it took many trials and error before we got to something that we, we were satisfied with. Just looking at that thing, you know, the Death Star opening is, is really is a really cool effect, but that that hyperloop really sets that game off. And and I always love that mech on the getaway. So when he brought it back for Star Wars, it yeah. doesn't get enough credit because how far it loops. I was like, yeah, you know how hard it is to keep that perfectly aligned to where yeah. the balls aren't going to fly off. I, and I, then keep them going round and round. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I think uh, Pat Lawler had done something similar with uh, NASCAR. Right? You're right. Yeah, I recall. Right. Yeah, I'm trying to think it to another level. Okay, uh, because Steve had to be better. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, but you know, you mentioned the Death Star. The Death Star was no simple feat either uh, to get it to work properly. To get these two halves closing opening and closing together uh that was not a simple thing so just was I the, thought i'd mentioned that yeah was the challenge with it um where it sits in that space yeah the the whole thing you know to to fit the mechanism to make it open to make sure that it it appeared seamless when it was closed with all these jagged edges uh, it was difficult yeah, that that's re- that the mold of it looks great when it's mm-hmm. closed, you know, and and you you almost wouldn't realize that it would open if you didn't yeah. know any better, you know. Yeah. Um, so I, I definitely get that part of it. So when you guys brought Star Trek back to Vault, it was there any changes that that you made? A lot of times I know with Vault, you guys make little tweaks. What was it on Star Trek if you did any? Yeah, I don't think there was. I think it was pretty much the same game, from what I recall. For yeah. for you, that's a good thing because that means you know you got everything right the first time. <laughs> yeah, that's good. So then then we go to um, I I love this current period of Stern because the mechs are getting better and better and better, and we get to Black Knight. The knight himself is is really cool. <laughs> yeah. So this one, nobody believed me when I told them what I was going to do with that. He said it'll never work. You know, I had a lot of inputs on how to make these two balls, you know, fling and spin and being hit and kick the ball back. 
it was quite a challenge to come up with the springs that are on on it it took a while for me to find the the proper material to make this thing last because in the beginning it just kept breaking did Uh, you have it solid at first no i never went solid because i didn't feel that was the way to do it everybody wanted me to do that and okay no it's it's just not gonna work we need flexibility you know you're gonna hit this thing it's gonna react it needs to be able to flex and send the ball back okay so i went in that direction and at first uh, it was it was difficult and it was failing but i kept persevering and look for other materials and we finally found something that worked and these springs are not are nothing like a common spring in terms of the material i can't tell you more about it (laughs) (laughs) yeah they they look super thick and you know they almost look rigid but you know they're not like when you actually you know get your hands down there it's not often a lot of times I, I see a mech like that and I'm like, I got to look closer at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. I got to get my hands on it and look at it. Cause the, the thing that's so cool about the night is not only do you have that spinning flail that, that you're mentioning, but on the other side, he has a shield that goes up yeah, and down. The shield, yeah, yeah. And it's like, you fit all that right yeah. there. Yes. It was, it was quite a challenge to fit all this in that uh, small space. You're absolutely right. Oh, you know, one of the things that I, pride myself about on the black knight is the way the the two balls are attached to that center shaft which uh, what i wanted to do is make sure it'd be easy to replace if there was a problem with it and it is it's just held by one screw that you uh, remove and then that whole section comes out and you can put a new section back on with that wow that's amazing. That, that's crazy. Anything else apart. Just right on the top. Right on the top. Yeah. Man, did you put any thread lock on that or something? I mean, that thing's going uh, pretty quick. Probably, yes. There, there, most likely there is uh, thread Just lock. A, yeah, a little, little blue on there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, that is incredible. So are, are you a fan of the, uh, the upper play field or do you like it more fast, uh, the pro version? No, I like the the upper play field. It's, you know, I didn't, let's see, what did I do on the upper play field? I'm trying to recall. The upper play field was, was laid out by Harrison. Yeah. And uh, I did some of the stuff on it, but he mostly did the, that, that ramp that goes in. If I recall, he did that. I just added some stuff to it. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. The thing I love about the upper play field is uh, it gives you that second chance that if you can lock three balls in a row. Yes. You, it, oh, man, that's such a great yeah. moment in that game. It's very cool, yes. Yeah, it's so much fun. The The other thing, too, um, I don't know if you know this, but the Black Knight topper is considered the greatest topper of all time. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did, did you work on that one? Nope. That was done by uh, Elliot. Elliot Eisman did the, the topper. Wow. Yeah. Well, uh, people love that topper and I don't know if you know what they sell for secondhand, but it's a, it's a lot. <laughs> really? Okay. Great. <laughs> yeah. no, well, the, I mean, that head that moves and talks to you. I mean, yeah, it's, it's something. And that's when these guys uh, started to introduce servo motors because this one uses two servo motors. 
And that was something new for us. We had never used servo motors before. Huh, interesting. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, the way that head articulates, is it just looks so real. You know, it, it, it's got a great movement to it. Um, you know, I, I want to stop you because there is one game that I'm surprised you didn't talk about that Steve and I did. Oh, gosh, let me know what it is. What, what was it? Elvis. Yeah, oh, I missed it. Yeah, yeah. I was surprised you didn't mention it because the little Elvis Mac I thought was pretty cool. Well, you know what's crazy about Elvis is it ends up in a lot of home collections, like uh-huh. diehard Elvis fans and stuff. But like, right. I don't see it on location, so I don't. I, I think I've maybe played it once. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you might be right. It might be more of a collector's item. De- definitely, the, and it seems like the people that buy them, they just hang on to them. You remember the Elvis with the legs swinging in the. The microphone coming to his I, face. I do. I do now. Yeah. Um, so tell me, what? How did that come about? Uh, well, that was uh, Steve's idea. You know, he wanted an Elvis or rocking Elvis. So, um, you know, I put this on a uh, a step motor actually, so they could control it and make it go back and forth real quick. Uh, and then came up with these mini coils to actuate the legs and the the arm, and it turned out really looking great, uh, from what I remember. Have you guys used those mini coils on other things before? Um, yes, actually, um, I had used that that's the same mini coil on the ship for uh, Pirates of the Caribbeans for the sails. That was the first time I had used it. And then when he told me he wanted that Elvis to move and and rock just like the real Elvis, I thought, okay, the only way I'm going to be able to pack all all this in is with these mini coils. So that's what I did, and it worked out. So I'm guessing uh, there's kind of a groove in the play field, like Rolling Stone, where Mick goes back and forth. Elvis moves so much more than Mick does. How does that whole assembly go together? Yeah, because everything was moving. That's the thing. You know, the whole thing was moving. You basically have a, a base underneath the playfield, a frame with the motor, but then everything is attached to that lead screw and it moves along the, the, the coils, the Elvis, the you know, everything. Was there any concerns that, you know, moving that much weight instead of like on Big Buck Hunter where it was just like the deer or, you know, Mick uh, in Rolling Stone, like moving that much of a sub-assembly would, would cause too much wear on the motor? Or... No, because I had tested that and I had experience with these kinds of uh, lead screws, lead screw systems. So, no, I, I wasn't too concerned about, about wear with this. Well, I think that brings us up to date with Led Zeppelin. And and that uh, that electric magic mech, that thing is, I mean, I love multi-stage mechs, and you have a super fast opto spinner in there, a magnet, an up post like in the back, and it raises and lowers. Yep. Whose idea was it to have that many stages to it? Oh, well, it's all Steve. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is all Steve. You know, we did what he wanted. It was not simple, uh, again, like, like everything else. Uh, Elliot did that, Elliot Eisman, turned out to be a, a great-looking mechanism. Yeah, it is really something. Looking at pictures of it, you have to shoot it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Through the middle of that thing, just to watch that spinner rip and, and the magnet grab it. I'm, I'm curious now, like, um, 
how big are the magnets? Cause I haven't raised the play field on black Knight or Led Zeppelin, but you know, like on, on the older Williams games, like the magnets are pretty large. Mm-hmm. How are you guys fitting the magnet in, in the center of that, that mech? Well, it's, it's the same magnet that is used on, the, on black Knight, you know, to, to catch the ball. Right. Uh, it's just packaged in a different way. Gotcha. Uh, onto this mech and it's, it's right underneath in, in the center. Man, that, that yeah. thing, uh, it must take up some real estate on the bottom, that, that yes. whole mech. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It is a deep mechanism. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and did that blow like Steve's budget making this crazy mech? Was he like, <laughs> were they like uh, no more after that? No, because, you know, if you look at the rest of the game, the rest of the game is fairly simple. Right. Okay? Uh, on that game, there is the reverser on the top left that sends the ball back into the right. But as far as mechanisms, that's it. So we were able to make this work. Yeah, make it super mm-hmm. intricate and special. But over the course of time, has the has the bomb went up? Like, is it you know the mechs are getting you know cooler and cooler with the obviously prices have went up because materials have went up, but you know, as a, at some point when you guys were getting better themes and did Gary or, you know, the investors or whoever said, okay, you guys can, you know, put a little more in there yes. on those mechs. Yes. That, uh, that is kind of a, an ongoing thing. Okay. Right. It's very hard to hit the targets and have a fun game. You know, if we were to do everything the game designers want, we could <laughs> never sell a game. <laughs> Uh, so we do have to compromise. That's what right. we call it. You know, we try to keep it fun, but yet make it manufacturable and uh, economically manufacturable. So, so what? What was the? Cra- you don't have to name the designer, but what was the craziest mech one of the guys brought to you, and you knew, like, man, this thing's going to be so costly. <laughs> well, um, I can tell you that for Star Trek. The Vengeance originally was going to be something much, much more complicated and probably cooler to watch as well, but the cost got completely out of hand. Michael Redoble had worked on that, and I kept working with him, and I kept telling Steve, Steve, this is not going to work out. We're not going to be able to do that. You know, I can give you a, a... a small hint uh, you know how the field camera works on in an nfl game that air camera that spans yeah. the field okay he wanted to do something like that whoa and that turned out to to be extremely costly now we, we almost got there but then finally we pulled the plug on it oh that's so cool now, did you guys put that on the shelf and go, maybe one day we're going <laughs> to... Maybe gonna one day. Maybe yeah. one day. But oh, man. I, I, I just, we just couldn't see it because it got too complicated to make it work properly. Right, right. But that's what, that originally, that's what Steve wanted. The ship that would span the game. That would have been cool. I yeah, well, say. you know, maybe one day we, we will. So. I'm, I'm, I think you're getting there. Yeah, for sure. I, it looked like um, there was a lot of innovation in Stranger Things as well. And and obviously the UV kit just put it over the edge, but it was really cool that Stern offered that and printed all the play fields with the ink. Um, how close was, you know, you, was the projector like 
were you guys just like, okay, this is just, you know, getting out of hand? Yeah, we almost, uh, we almost gave up on that projector. Okay. It came very close. If I recall, George was very concerned about it. But we, we ended up being able to make it work pretty well. So it stayed in the game. We had to sacrifice other things to put it in, but overall, it made the, the game pretty interesting, you know, by projecting these images. Well, people are always asking for innovations in pinball and look no further than that. I mean, it's, you know, obviously projectors have been around for quite some time in other industries and things, but when it comes to a pinball machine, to fit it under the glass is, is something exactly. else. Exactly. That was the, the issue, to fit it in, you know, uh, yeah. was, a, was a major challenge. Oh, you know, I did some work on that, uh, the bracketry and, and all that. But uh, the, most of the game was done by Rob, Rob Blakeman. Gotcha. Any mechs coming up that blow everything else out of the water that we've seen to date? Yes, there is one uh, that's about to, to come out. I'm not going to say more about it, but <laughs> there is something new that is coming out soon done by one of the younger engineers so you'll see it soon did it blow your mind when he got it done it i think it's blowing everyone's mind i am excited Not just me because harrison normally works with elwin right yep <laughs> i'm not gonna push it any further than that yeah i have to be careful to you know what i say so oh of course <laughs> yeah 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 so anything else i may have missed you know uh, going backwards in time no, I think, uh, like I said, the, the Elvis was the one that I felt you had missed. Um, <laughs> but no, other, otherwise, you know, uh, 24, uh, uh, what was the other one? Yeah, CSI. Yeah, CSI, you know, I mean, all this, yeah, it had, had something to do with all these games. Yeah, it, it's so tough because, like, I just tried to pluck you know, some that stand out to me that I've had some experience with and different things. And yeah, I could talk to you all night, probably yeah. about different, different games, but you know, it's funny because sometimes on IPDB, the internet pinball database, they'll, they'll credit the mechanical engineers on the game. And then sometimes you guys aren't on there at all. Yeah. So then it's hard for, you know, when I'm doing research to know like what, what you've actually touched. Yeah. And that, that's, what's so special about you guys is like, these are stories and things nobody ever gets to hear, but like we all love these games. Yeah. And... But you know, we understand that we're we're mechanical engineers. Um, the games really are created by the game designer. Okay, what we do as mechanical engineers, we take their ideas and make them, you know, translate them into something that's economically manufacturable and sellable. Uh, but really, uh, for me, I cannot take the credit away from the game designers because in the end, it's it's their ideas of that course. make it on the play field. We just realize them. Right. But I still don't. I'm, I'm a technical guy. I like, you know, tinkering with things and, and building things. And, you know, they're not to discredit uh, you guys either, because I mean, you breathe life into these things. You, sure. you br bring them into reality and it takes the whole team to, to put these games together all the way down the assembly line. So it's, yep. you know, three more questions and I'm going to let you go. What game would you vault John from Stern's catalog? A game that has not been vaulted. Yeah. 
um elvis <laughs> yeah all right we're gonna bring back that. an elvis fan okay um so yes that would be one that i think would be interesting to work on again very cool and what theme would be a dream theme for you oh you're gonna you're gonna laugh at me okay <laughs> but I, first of all i for me i love music games you know aerosmith led zeppelin ACTC, these were great games to work on and they're fun games to play. I would like to see a Pink Floyd game. Oh, John, you just rang a lot of music to a lot of pinball fans' ears. And you're you're, you're going to say, well, it's too slow. You know, it's not good for pinball. I disagree completely. I think you could make a great Pink Floyd game. With, I mean, they have such a, a catalog of extraordinary music. I think it still would be fun to play a, a game along a Pink Floyd theme. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no, I mean, comfortably numb wizard mode just in my head. Yeah, I'm playing I, that right I now. I doubt it will ever happen, but, you know, you asked me, so I told you. Yeah, I was I was going to ask you earlier when we were talking about the rock pans. Did did you like that music? You know, were you interested in that that type of rock? You know, so it sounds like you were you were fine working on those games. Yes, well, you, you have to understand that you know, um, like I said, I'm a little bit older and uh, been around, grew up in France. But when I was a kid, when I was a teenager in France, you know, we'd play pinball for hours in bars or or in, you know, whatever places at pinball. And there was always music because there was jukeboxes. And to me, I've always assimilated pinball with music because that's the way I grew up with it. Sure. So for me, like a game like Led Zeppelin, it's, it's incredible to play the game with this music that I'm a big fan of, that I grew up with. You know, it makes you want to play the game. That's the way I look at it. Yeah, and it it adds a level of excitement that yes, that, yes. that's that sometimes a lot of other games maybe just can't reach uh, yeah. from More the music. And a movie theme, to in my opinion, okay, right? Like, again, this is my opinion. So, have you have you ever seen the more recent Roger Water tours? Uh, I've seen it on uh, on TV. As a matter of fact, over the weekend, I've watched a lot of Pink Floyd video because I'm crazy about Pink Floyd. Always have been. Oh uh, man, I, I've I've got to get you a ticket to one of his. It's a visual like explosion. It, it's the uh, the wall, right? He does. The, uh, yeah, I've, I saw yeah. the wall and uh, Us versus Them. I, I saw both of those tours, and yeah. um, I saw Pink Floyd in 1982, I believe. <laughs> wow. Uh, uh, here in Chicago, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, and uh, that was uh, it was one of the m most awesome shows that I can remember. I've been to a lot of concerts, but well, the Pink Floyd really left a mark on me. Definitely. If let's just say we can't get Pink Floyd, what do you think about Rush? Well, not as big I'm a not, fan. I'm on not Rush. a fan of Rush, so oh okay, <laughs> I backfired on that one. I was trying to get my way in the back door. No, I'm sorry. It's okay. Um, it's yeah, okay. You know, I I think I only know one of their songs, the, the Spirit of the Radio or something. Mm -hmm. song, yeah, right? it, uh, that's yeah. about it. I never was a big fan of Rush. Okay, well, yep. Yeah. So, um, last question: 
Favorite non-stern game. Favorite non-stern game. Wow. That's a loaded question. <laughs> it could be from any era. You don't have to pick a newer one. Game. Yeah. Isn't there uh, this new Pirates? Uh, there is, yeah. Jersey Jack. Right, right. Yeah, I remember seeing that game at the at the Pinball Expo. I I played it, if I recall, but the uh, the visual was was quite good on that game, I thought. That's one I, I'm thinking of. But, you know, um, like I was telling you, I, I started being exposed to pinball, uh, you know, when I was very young growing up in France. And, I, and we played so many games back then in the 60s and 70s. I don't know all these titles. And the games were so much simpler back then. You know, sure. flat and there was no upper play fields and ramps. But all I can tell you is that I recall having great fun playing pinball in general, uh, whether it's in Europe or here. What, what if I put you under a more uh, stressful gun, your favorite Stern game? <laughs> favorite Stern game? Yeah. ACDC. Yep. What is it about ACDC? Just the, the music? the Well, the music and the, uh, the lower play field. That's underneath. Yeah. On the LE. Yeah. I, you know, and, and probably I am a little bit partial to the music, okay, the band sure. itself. I have not seen ACDC, but I was hoping to see them when they fell apart a few years ago. I hear they're going back on tour, so we'll see. It's on my bucket list. Well, I think that wraps it up, John. I, I thank you so much for taking the time. Okay. Thank you. Uh, great speaking with you. I want to thank our guest, John Rothermel, and a big shout out to Zach Sharp for getting me in touch with John. I really appreciate that. And congratulations to last month's prize winners, Steve Lawson and Kevin Peterson. They got the Mega Man 2 trivia questions right, and that got them a Bit Brigade t-shirt. We had two winners. They were so close that I uh, decided to give them both a t-shirt. They were within minutes of each other answering. All right, this month's trivia. I'm going to take it a little bit easier on you guys. All you have to do is name the Pink Floyd song from the beginning of the episode and the one at the end of the episode that's playing right now and the album they're from, and submit those answers to mtmpinball at gmail.com. We'll send you out some stern swag. I'll catch you guys next month with another interview. Thanks for listening. Until then.